try that again. So today, along with uh, Christians all over the world, we embark on a journey through the season of Advent, which is a season of waiting and preparation for Christ's arrival in the world. And so we are setting aside the next four Sundays starting today, leading up to the fourth Sunday of Advent, which is Christmas Eve, as a time to create space in our lives and our hearts to prepare room for Christ the King. And so we begin this series called The Advent Conspiracy, which was started a number of years ago by three churches and has grown to hundreds of churches participating all around the United States, where we want to reclaim the true story of Christmas out of all the other stories that are told during the season, Um, to remember that uh, there is only one story that the season is rooted in. And so we want to explore what would it look like to enter into Christmas in a way that actually reflects the story of God's arrival in this world in the person of Jesus Christ. And so for the next four Sundays, we'll be looking at the four pillars of the Advent Conspiracy, beginning today with the first pillar uh, called Spend Less. Now, before we get to that, I want to dive into some scripture and look at the Christmas story and see how that frames this this talk today. So we're going to begin by by reading Matthew chapter 2. We're going to read parts of this chapter that uh, outlines the story of the first Christmas. Matthew chapter 2, starting from verse 1. Follow along with me. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Let's pause there for a moment. So this is the story of the first Christmas. And the way that Matthew tells this story, we're given a picture of two kings, right? And he intentionally describes these two kings and their respective kingdoms in a way that invites the listener to compare and contrast these two who would take on the title King of the Jews. And so in verse 1, Matthew tells us two very important things about the first Christmas. First, it happened in a place called Bethlehem in Judea. And second, it happened during the time of King Herod during his reign. And so he is the first king that we're going to look at as we look at this tale of two kings. So first of all, what do we know about King Herod? So we know that he was appointed to be the king of the Jews by the Roman Senate because he ruled as a vassal state over the land of Judea. However, and this is interesting, Herod himself wasn't Jewish. So the people of Judea actually refused to consider his rule legitimate. They rejected his kingship. Moreover, he rose to that position of being king of the Jews using some shady political dishonest means, kind of like working his way in through the back door, kind of cloak and dagger, house of cards, if you're familiar with that kind of way, right? And so he becomes the king of the Jews and rules this land. But we also know from history that King Herod is incredibly insecure. That any threat that poses itself against the kingdom uh, or any perception of any threat, he, he would do anything that he could to minimize and do away with that threat, even if it meant killing those closest to him. So for example, Herod the Great kills three of his own sons because he believes that they, they were uh, conspiring to take over his empire. 
Not only that, he goes on to kill one of his many wives. He goes on to murder his mother-in-law and several of his key advisors. So Herod is this incredibly violent and unstable and ambitious king who's not very popular with the people. In fact, he knows how much the people hate him so that on his deathbed, uh, because when he knew that his life was coming to an end, he was afraid that instead uh, of mourning and weeping on the day of his death, that the people, the Jewish people he ruled over would actually celebrate. He feared that so much that he issued a decree on his deathbed that, um, that had all the prominent leaders in the Jewish community imprisoned, and then they were ordered to be executed on the very same day that he breathed his last. And this was to ensure and guarantee that the Jewish people would mourn and weep on the day of his death rather than celebrate. And so you could see how desperate, how insecure and narcissistic this king is. And yet, Herod builds this impressive empire. I mean, he is known for his architectural genius and achievements. He's known to have built grand palaces and temples and huge fortresses that are still there in Israel today. And it's a kingdom that's built on wealth and power and status and accumulation and greed and, all the, and possessions. And these are the marks of the first king in this story, the, uh, the story of King Herod. Then, uh, three and a half miles away from King Herod is a small village called Bethlehem, where we are told there is another king that is born, and this king would also be known as the king of the Jews. But at this point in the story, this king and his kingdom is not impressive at all. He's a child of poor refugee parents. He is literally born in a barn to an unwed teenage mother. Uh, so you have Herod, this powerful, impressive king, and then you have Jesus, this weak, helpless, and just uh, a little baby born in a barn. Nothing impressive about Jesus and his kingdom. In fact, his kingdom is quite small, unpretentious, and it's simple. But we know that one day this little baby Jesus would grow up, and as an adult, as a rabbi, he would go on to describe his kingdom, telling the crowds what God's kingdom was like. And he would say things like, it is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed in, this, in the garden. It is like a little amount of dough, uh, uh, yeast, that is thrown in the bread dough. It is like buried treasure that nobody even knows it's there, that they're walking right on top of it. And he goes on to say, God's kingdom is invisible. It's not of this world. In fact, he says uh, that, that uh, th his kingdom doesn't play by the world's rules. In other words, um, th his kingdom isn't going to be impressive to anybody who lives in Herod's kingdom. But Herod, along with a few others, knows that this baby king is a threat to the status quo. And so let's see how King Herod reacts to the Magi coming and proclaiming and inquiring about this other king of the Jews. In verse 3, the story continues. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. And disturbed here doesn't mean like irritated and annoyed. It means freaking out. I mean, deep emotional turmoil. Now, we already know that Herod is a bloodthirsty, unstable man, but it, let's see what happens next. I mean, this is, he goes to like the next level here. When he, verse four, when he called together all the ch people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them to the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Which is not the truth at all. He wants to kill him. Well, the the Magi's go and they present their gifts uh, and, and all that. And then... Verse 12, it says, And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, the Magi returned to their country by another route. Verse 16, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This man is so bloodthirsty, so unstable, that when he finds about this this other king of the Jews, he decrees the genocide of all the boys two years old and under in and around Bethlehem. Now, thankfully, we didn't read this part, but we're told that Jesus' parents had been warned of this threat that Herod was going to implement in a dream, and and then they are led to flee to Egypt. And by the way, Aren't you glad that there are places where Middle Eastern refugees are welcomed? Two kings and two kingdoms. One is great and impressive. The other one is hidden, subtle, humble. One is driven by greed and wealth and power and status. The other is driven by humility, love, and justice. And so... Here's a question I want to ask. If you had to guess which king we celebrate during Christmas in America, which king would you guess? I mean, on one hand, we would say, well, of course, Christmas is about Jesus. But take a look at this uh, little short video. It's directed by Morgan uh, Spurlock, who is an independent filmmaker. He's not a Christian, but he made this documentary a number of years ago, and he entitled, What Would Jesus Buy? As fall turns to winter across this nation, many millions will converge on centers of worship, large and small, to celebrate and give thanks to a familiar God. He tells us to buy now and pay later. He tempts us with promises of endless credit as he leads us down the path to eternal debt. Tis the season to be shopping. There's just one more thing you have to do before the end of the year, and that is shop yourself silly. We're saying, you know, look, we can't just let the terrorists win and just stay home. Millions of Americans are hitting the stores. Tradition on this Black Friday is get out and shop until you drop. We used to be a nation of producers and are now a nation of consumers. American stores could already fit every man, woman, and child in North America, South America, and Europe inside them at one time. Toys and Elmo and PlayStation 3. We love Elmo. Hot gadgets, appliances, toys. What's gift for you guys? Flat panel TVs are big this year. We have to have that or it won't be a happy holiday. You have to have that or it won't be a happy holiday, right? Tis a season to shop. So if you had to guess which king that we actually celebrate here in America, 
Which king would you guess? I think you could tell it's undeniable that the kingdom of Herod is alive and well today. In fact, consumerism has become the new religion in America. And maybe you wouldn't think that consumerism is a religion, but it has all the marks of a religion, starting with this thing called transcendence, right? The feeling it gives you when you buy something, right? There is something about consumerism that gives us meaning and something about buying something that promises a kind of life that we've always imagined. And so in a consumer culture, it's important for us to realize this simple truth, that all the things that money can buy are more than just things. Everything you buy has some sort of significance or meaning attached to it. And we don't even notice it. So for example, you buy a new car. Well, when you buy a new car, you're not just looking for transportation, are you? Right? Or we just buy the simplest, most reliable vehicles around. No, when you buy a car, you are buying a new status and a new identity. And we're asking the question, how do I want to see myself? How do I want other people to see me? What kind of image do I want to convey to the people around me? This is also true of the clothing we wear. The the clothes that we wear serves a greater purpose than just simply covering up our nakedness, right? The clothing we wear, they are our way of expressing our uniqueness, how much we're alike or how much we're different than the people around us. Or even the technology we buy. I mean, think of the status or the meaning that's given. Like, oh, (coughs) you only have an Android and not an iPhone? (laughs) Or, what? You don't buy organic and you're in Ann Arbor? (laughs) Like, think about that. There is meaning and identity behind all of these things that we attach to everything we buy. There is a promise connected to every purchase we make. In other words, there is a sense of transcendence to our consumerism. And advertisers know this, right? They're not just selling their product, are they? They are selling a new and better life. Their main goal, if you ever watch commercials, their main goal is to convince you that your life sucks. <laughs> and if you buy their product, your life won't suck anymore. I mean, that is a story we are bombarded with, uh, and particularly during this Christmas season. And you know, you know who are the worst culprits of this? Infomercials, right? Just the other week, uh, after the second service, I usually go home, have lunch, watch the uh, 1 o'clock football game until the evening service. Well, the time between the, the 1 o'clock football games and then the uh, afternoon games, there's usually a, a little time in between. And, and a few weeks ago, I'm sitting there, finished watching the first game when this infomercial comes on. And it's an infomercial for the GT Express Platinum, right? Here it is. It, it's like a glorified George Foreman grill, except... I mean, you could throw whatever you have around the house, just, I mean, uh, you know, cheese, potatoes, whatever, and and in seven minutes, you can have this healthy gourmet meal. I mean, it's low-carb, gluten-free, and so on, right? And the promise that really hooked me in as I'm watching this is you will never have to do dishes again. (laughs) 
you simply wipe it down with a paper towel, and then you can move on to the more important things in life. And now, like, I am glued to the TV watching this, right? When all of a sudden, my son comes coming down the stairs to ask me a question, and he stands right in front of the TV screen. Now I'm sitting there, and, I'm, and, and he's like, Daddy, can I, I don't even hear him. I'm like, Micah, get out of the way. He's like, what, what, what? I'm like, move out. You're blocking the GT Express. He's like all confused. What, what? And, and like I'm sitting there, and, you know, and they start showing video testimonies, right? Like these are real customers and not real actors. Yeah, right, right? And how their life is now different because of this new product, you know, and it's always the same, right? I used to be overweight and lonely, and now that I've bought this product, I'm 50 pounds lighter, and I'm dating a supermodel or something like that. And so they're not simply selling a product. They are selling a vision of a new and better life, a life where all of your problems are taken care of, all your inconveniences are just solved. And as I'm watching this, I'm thinking, because I do the dishes at home, I'm thinking, man, this can change our lives. I'm like, hey, Amy, look, for two easy payments of $19.95, that's a really good deal. Ours should be here in two to four weeks. I'm just kidding. We, we overnighted it. I'm just, I'm just kidding about that too. But we imagine our lives when we have these things. We imagine a life without pain or problems. And we don't say that. We don't even think that out loud. But this is how ingrained Herod's kingdom is in our lives. And the crazy thing is this. The crazy thing is it actually works for a little while. For a little while, when you get that thing, that new car, the new outfit, the new phone, for a moment, days, weeks, or even months, it actually works. You enjoy the new status, the meaning and security it gives you, the sense of identity that is now bestowed upon you because of whatever you've bought. But it doesn't take that long before we start thinking about the next thing, right? There's a new phone. There's a better car. My, my outfit, the style, has gone, gone, uh, 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 the style has changed, and so now I need to update my outfit. I need to keep up. And here is what is crazy about this whole thing. We as Americans, we thrive on that as consumers. So much so, and marketers know this, right, that the obsolescence of our consumer products actually gives us hope. It gives us hope that the next thing, the bigger, better, faster, more expensive thing is exactly what I need. And that actually gives us hope, right? Which is ridiculous. And so we continue to be formed and shaped by our consumer culture through these rituals of shopping, buying things that we don't necessarily need. And we think to ourselves, because we swim in this culture called consumerism, I just have to have this thing. And during this season, it gets blown way out of proportion, doesn't it? So the invitation this Christmas season is this. What if we could learn to celebrate God's arrival in the world in a way that looks more like Jesus' kingdom than Herod's? I mean, this would be totally countercultural. That would look different from the world around us. 
So what if we started simply by committing that this Christmas we are going to resist the empire of Herod and we're going to reject our identity as consumers and we're going to embrace our identity as being united with Christ. And that's where we, where we start talking about spending less, where that comes in. Now, I don't know what that looks like for you, right? Spending less, which is the first tenet of the Advent Conspiracy. But I know that for many of us, this would be incredibly good news, right? For me to say, look, you have permission to spend less money this Christmas. And so maybe for you, maybe it means simply not spending money you don't have. Because that is the insanity of Christmas. And we've heard this, and we, right, we spend money we don't have to buy people things they don't need. And in fact, this is the, uh, this is the culture around Christmas too, at least in, even in gift giving. It, it is almost presumed that my level of love and affection for you is parallel to the amount of money that I spend. And so we spend ridiculous amounts of money just to, to buy things that people don't need just to show them, like, man, we really love you. Now, some of you are anxious because you're thinking, man, this strikes at the very core of my status and my identity. Like, it, w- what are my friends and family going to think of me if I don't spend money on them, right? Which, again, shows how far and deep this Herod identity goes in our hearts, right? What kind of parent am I going to be if I only spend this amount of money instead of this much for my kids? What kind of in-law, what, if, what kind of son-in-law am I going to be if, if uh, my in-laws are expecting this and, and I only give them this? I don't know if you've seen this commercial lately, but there's a, there's a commercial that basically says, it's, I think it's for like a jewelry store or something where you buy diamonds. And the ad says this, if you buy your loved ones this diamond or whatever, they won't just love the holidays, they will love you. I mean, think about that. Like, okay, that, that is how I will show my love for my spouse is buying like this $3,000 diamond. Now, I don't know who I would be if I weren't allowed to spend that kind of money. And see, you see how steep this really goes. Now, we're not making this a new kind of rule, saying like, if you don't do this, we're somehow going to judge you or condemn you. We're just saying, what would it look like? And maybe for you, it means, to, it means cutting down your Christmas budget, maybe significantly, maybe in half. Maybe you can commit to buying one or two less items uh, or, and gifts and find some creative ways to spend less. I don't know what it looks like for you. It's all different for everybody. But the point is this. The point isn't, and I'll say this, the point isn't just to spend less in a greedy kind of way so we could keep more for ourselves. That's not the point. The point is that we, as we, as we reject our consumer identity, we are free to use our money and our possessions in a way that reflects Christ and his kingdom in the world today. And so that is a challenge of this first tenet of spend less. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and he says to them this. He says, if you're going to call yourself a follower of Jesus, one of the inevitable signs is that you, that you have received the grace of God is that you will live a life of generosity. 
Now, we have to understand, Paul isn't talking to rich people here. He's actually talking to one of the poorest early churches back in those days. And then he celebrates the fact that the church in Corinth, that they get to be generous with the little money that they have. And then he uses this verse as as the motivation and the reason why. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. And so he says, look, you know, this is, the, this is the picture of Christmas, a little baby in a manger, a God who was rich but became poor for your sake. He gave of himself, he emptied himself, he lowered himself so that you and I might be rich. And I don't think Paul means rich in the Herod sense, Right? He is saying that you may be rich in the grace of God. This is what it means to live a blessed life, a life poured out in love and justice and mercy and kindness and humility and all the things that mark God's kingdom in this world. So at the very least, if you're still wrestling with how do I live and lean into this first tenet of spending less, let me suggest making one small shift. And that is the shift from using people and loving things to go from using things and loving people. Does that make sense? It is so easy for me to love things and use people. And not just in my head, but in my heart. My prayer is, God, will you just shift my heart posture so now that I will just use things as a gift that you've given me and I will learn to love people. Another way that you could live this out is this. Maybe you commit to spending one or two less gifts for somebody that you know doesn't need the newest trinket or newest gift that you're going to give them. And maybe today as you walk out these doors, you grab one of the tags for the, the Hesed tree, the giving tree. For people in Brightmoor who, I don't know if you know this, it is the, the poorest neighborhood in Detroit. If you've ever driven through there and you don't want to drive through there alone or in the dark, I mean, the, like what would it look like for us to lean into this? And not only that, but I sent out a letter a couple of weeks ago kind of saying that on Christmas Eve, the last Sunday of Advent, we, what we're going to do, we're going to have a special offering, and the money we didn't spend because of this Advent conspiracy, we are going to collect all together um, the money we didn't spend to buy gifts that people don't need. We're going to take it, and we're going to give it all away. People around here, uh, people regionally, people all around the world who, legi- who legitimately have needs. And so the question is, How much or will you be a part of the movement of Christ's kingdom, bringing love and truth and beauty in this world? And so as we look at the tale of two kings here and the two kingdoms, here's the question that I leave you. Which kingdom will you be a part of this Advent season? The kingdom of Herod or the kingdom of Jesus? Let's Let's bow our heads and pray. And so, God, today, we want to participate with you in this conspiracy of fighting against the commercialization and the consumerism of Christmas. And so, God, would you enable us, by your grace, to lean into this, to actually make a difference this Christmas, to to, to let Christmas be about you 
and about those people around us. And so Jesus, today, we want to lift up our hearts. We want to be formed and shaped by your good news, by your gospel, by your arrival in this world, more than the, the, the pressures of this world. And so God, we commit ourselves to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.